Thank you for telling all of your friends about the Modern CTO Podcast. I asked a few episodes back and noticed a huge spike in listens, so thank you so much for telling them. We're all about resourcing the current generation and raising up the next generation of technologists. This is the reason why the greatest leaders on earth come on and share their hard-earned experience with us. So make sure to tell your friends, tell your team, the more listeners who join us, the more value we bring and the bigger the guests get. For all of you following along, LeaderBits is doing fantastic. LeaderBits is a place where you can learn from the best technology leaders in the world. You can sharpen your skills, execute strategy, level up, and become more valuable as a technology leader. Visit leaderbits.io. We now have a free trial. Speaking of great leaders, today we are talking to Lachlan, the CEO of Mova Project, and we discuss the disruptive nature of blockchain, gaining trust and credibility through leading by example, and how focusing on people can be the key to success. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. by what's your first name it's it's lachlan i people call me lucky it's it's hell hard for uh, americans to get it though i get l- latchy a lot lucky lucky yeah like a key in a lock right yeah that's an awesome name though is that a common name over there uh it is now so i'm always surprised in shopping centers or playgrounds for my kids that all the lock, little lockies in the world seem to be real brats so the moms are always screaming at them and i'm always spinning around wondering what i've done Dude, that's awesome. So you you work with like mines and rigs and that's pretty cool. Yeah, all that stuff. So uh, my uh, father and grandfather were miners and uh, my dad was an equipment operator. So he drove three and 400 ton dump trucks, drilling rigs, stuff like that. And uh, then I I got into it. I've been mainly in the management and transformation side of uh, coal businesses or energy businesses. So it's a couple of big players. BHP Building's the biggest one in the world. So I was a junior executive there for a while at uh, the largest open cut energy coal mine in uh, the Southern Hemisphere. And then uh, I, I kind of bounced around and went to uh, some oil and gas providers doing a $6 billion project up in Roma, which is in Queensland, way out in the middle of nowhere. And then from there started a, a head of procurement role, which was with a whole range of coal mines. So some were underground, as I'm sure you've seen in the movies before, which is pretty full on, and some were open cut. So they're the huge kind of big holes, essentially, um, with the, the extremely large equipment. And uh, then I got into transformation. So I've worked for Boston Consulting and my own firm, running around and the, the simple way to put it is if a company's kind of losing money and having problems getting this stuff out of the ground, I'm there to help them. And generally their supply chain is a big part of it. So what does your day to day look like? Uh, so I'm actually doing a project for a metallurgical coal mine in uh, Illawarra, which is south of Sydney. Um, and uh, the day to day is usually 12 to 14 hours of trying to develop the facts for why something isn't working so when you when you get somewhere you, you always find the same story so people are usually um, trying very hard but let down by either a whole bunch of strange assumptions 
or some bad leadership where people weren't kind of held to account. So if you, the best way to address both of them is to start actually developing facts and understanding, you know, if the drill rig isn't working, why isn't it working? Uh, and, and uh, you know, if you're then able to get the guys to buy into the solution, which takes a, a lot of work, you've got to get their credibility first and earn their trust and then they'll kind of follow you the direction that you want to lead. So a general day will have me anywhere from the kind of corporate head office with the executives looking at the kind of five-year plan through to actually being on a site on the equipment trying to understand what uh, you know the top five failure modes are for something so we can ensure that it doesn't happen again. That's amazing and how large is the company that you work with? Uh, so the one that I work with now, uh, the, the sub, this specific subsidiary is worth about $2 billion, but the parent company is worth, I think it's about eight. Um, so, the, and, and I guess it's probably around about the size of company where I've spent most of my career, hence why I've, uh, I guess, aimed most of the products that, or, or the product that, I, that I'm building. And when you get to that scale, you're talking about thousands of employees, um, global supply chains, millions of transactions, $100 million contracts, and, uh, it, you know, little little success makes big success, but small problems end up making big problems. And, and something that's not working out on, on the coalface, which is a bit of a cull term, uh, it, you know, if you've got a leadership issue out there where guys aren't getting out of what's called the crib hut, which is essentially where they have their lunch underground, then that really reverberates all the way up to the boardroom generally. That's very similar to like engineers in a company, programmers, developers, when things are going wrong and product lowdown in the teams, uh, people aren't getting along, that translates right up through the, to the boardroom as well. Yeah, spot on, mate. So that company, you're a director there and that's called Lock & Co, right? Uh, so, so I'm essentially helping the directors. So I've, I've kind of got two companies. So one is my consulting firm and the other is the, the firm that I've got the blockchain um, development with. So the consulting firm, I am working with the metallurgical coal mine at the moment. And the, the, for my blockchain firm, Mova, uh, we actually have a trial at Hastings Deering at the moment, which is in Queensland. So I'm traveling up and down like every week. So Hastings Deering, you guys won't know what that is, but it's the one of the top five largest Caterpillar dealers in the world. Cat make those really big yellow trucks. Oh, and, yeah. and, and so I think they're worth about $3 billion. <clears throat> they're one of the largest in the world. And we've got a letter of intent and a essentially a functional trial up there to re, uh, refine our design and uh, help us make sure we get our build right. Um, so it's been a lot of travel and a lot of work, but it, you know, it's paying off, but I'm a director in both those firms, but not in the metallurgical coal mine. My job's to help the directors of that mine. Mova is really cool. How did you make the transition from working and with the managing? Like, how did you notice the opportunity and go from very smart about this whole concept of drilling and mining and all this stuff? And then you translate that over into smart contracts. I guess there's two key parts to that. So the first was there's this really clear and present problem or issue with supply chains that lets companies down time after time. So it's not a sexy thing to look at. It's much sexier to be on the drill rigs doing 
the manly stuff. Uh, not saying that guys in supply chains aren't manly, but that's kind of the culture here in Australia. And when you really think about it, the entire business depends on the supply chain. So I've seen $5 million trucks over and over again, completely shut down, waiting for a $15 part. And since we don't have that $15 part, we are going to express fly it from another state and that costs $3,000. And we could have planned better. We could have had it on the truck sooner, but because we're not looking at it and it's complex and difficult, we don't have a lot of sophistication in the space, which means that you know, if our truck's going to be down for a $15 part, it's driven this huge amount of behavior being risk adverse. So what does that mean? It means that we express freight everything all the time. We have kind of latent capacity all the time, which is really inefficient and costly, obviously, just to for those, you know, just in case moments where we've stuffed up, right? Right. And that ends up kind of creeping in. Everyone accepts that as normal and that kind of creates the culture. So the problem I've been wrestling with for quite a while professionally trying to improve that and banging up against the same kind of issues with contractors and supply chain companies hence why you know building something that's simple and usable for the guy in the warehouse at 3am that really provides real-time incentives and a third-party verified kind of gps location so you can tell what time the truck left the depot if it's actually late right mm. that's going to be really scalable and helpful and have a measurable cash benefit if you so one of my clients they're a multi-billion dollar firm they spend over a hundred million dollars a year on delivery costs they're essentially just a big supply chain and over 25 percent of that cost no joke 25 percent was spent on express rates so you got to think that's tens of millions of dollars just because their planning window was only out 12 hours right right then and the second part is you know, it, it's been a pretty ruthless mirror to go from talking about leadership and, and having expertise and being a trusted advisor to actually starting a company and trying to build it from the ground up. Uh, it, you, it's been a real lesson in what works and what doesn't, which has helped my consulting no end, but has been a real wake-up call on... Uh, you know, all, all the nice pamphlets and cheery things you can say about leadership or product development or getting stuff done, you know, if they don't stack up at the end of the day, I'm feeling the pain. So while it's been a, a, a period of growth, it's also been, uh, you know, it's broken some of the preconceived notions of what an expert I was as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you think and I like how you are doing well with, you have your subject matter expert, right? The mining and then you've translated that into growing into the leadership and consultant role. And then you've taken it farther where you identified needs and now you're branching out to do MOVA and solve a problem. That's an awesome path of growth from, you know, mastering a skill to becoming a leader in the arena to doing consulting to then busting out and solving a real need and bringing value into the market. I, I can't believe that. That's 25% on express shipping. That's unbelievable, man. It, it was mind-blowing. And, and, you know, there's this really complex set of, you know, behavioral issues, cultural issues that feed into why we have this risk approach. Everyone then accepts that's just the schedule. And then it's almost like uh, institutional memory. My friend puts it well. He says, it's like moss grows on rocks. 
because what happens is everyone's uh, warehouse schedules get um, adjusted for the latent capacity of the trucking firm. And then everyone starts taking their lunch breaks when the trucks aren't coming. And then all the trucks, of course, show up at one time. So people actually build queuing space at their facility. So instead of making it efficient, they're planning for it to be inefficient. Instead of solving the root problem, they build queuing space at the facilities. That's like with a system, like instead of writing more efficient code, just throwing more memory at it. Eventually it catches up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's so many similarities. And I like your concept of institutional memory. I haven't heard. That's something I know about. I just, it hasn't come up in my life in a long time. And I'm like, you know yeah. what? It's good for that to come back up right now for me to hear that because I could that's that stuff happened. So how what made you choose blockchain to solve this problem? Is it just because that's what everyone's going with right now, or was there some real tangible benefits to choosing that technology for them? So uh, I guess there's there's two answers to that question. And the first answer is I really like the deployable um, kind of customizable smart contracts. So it really cut the development time down for us. While we've got a lot of development to do on a UI UX and kind of the full stack, um, we were able to actually write all the code for the core smart contract in about a week. We got the logic right, we've tested it, it works about how to you know embed the real time variable incentives for lateness. So if it's late, you don't pay as much. Um, how to scrape all of the right GPS data from different platforms to verify everything in real time within the smart contract. They, they were things that were really attractive to actually kind of start jumping, you know, and start building straight away, which was really attractive. And I also think that blockchain itself, in as far as the connectivity, the immutable ledgers, it gives us a real room to grow into an ecosystem that kind of links providers and customers with, you know, reduced barriers to access so that everyone could kind of auction off the capacity that they have. And it, we get a more kind of efficient equilibrium with how things are moved around. Because you know, at the moment, if you need a, another vendor, if yours isn't pro, uh, providing well, you take a big punt on going to someone else and generally costs a whole heap of time and money to do a tender. So uh, I think that there's real merit in the blockchain uh, tech, but I was particularly interested in how the smart contract works and it, it's really efficient for us. The, the second part of that is we could have built it on something else, but I actually think it was faster to do it this way uh, and go straight for solving the problem. A friend of mine put blockchain really well. He said it was an engineering solution in search of a problem. And I, I feel like we're finally kind of found the, the right problem to solve with that smart contract platform. And I also saw it as an efficient funding mechanism. So we're actually going through the SEC qualification process. I think that's absolutely the future. And I went, when I was thinking about this earlier this year and late last year, uh, I went to a whole heap of events and was kind of struck having a background in uh, you know, board papers and, and giving advice to shareholders and messaging the market, et cetera, for large companies, struck by the impact or, or the culture of no regulation. And it was really leading to some, what I thought were pretty bad and predatory behaviors of people in telegram groups and all sorts of things I'm sure you're familiar with. So uh, 
I, I think regulation is the future. And I also think that if we go that route, it's an efficient funding mechanism so that uh, we can create an ecosystem where uh, 100% of the profits of um, the company are shared back to the people that invest in it. And I want to align the incentives of the system upfront, which means that the more transactions that come through the system, the better, because we charge a very small transactional fee. So we need to maximize how many actually come through and how many customers we have, which means the, the inverse of that is we actually, ha it has to work and it has to work well and people have to see the value in it. And uh, since the only way that really the founders, the team and uh, the coin holders, et cetera, make money is through the dividends, then the incentives are actually aligned and it's transparent, auditable, you know, I've got a fiduciary duty, right? Uh, so I think that if we were to go a different route with different technology, I wouldn't be able to build an ecosystem where the incentives are aligned so much. I'm sure you are quite familiar with what happens in Series A fundraising and the, the, the kind of compromises that have to be made to grow a company from, you know, nothing into something. And I think that this is truly disruptive. And I also think that if it was let off course from focusing on its kind of core value proposition to customers and and the market that, you know, it, it wouldn't realize its potential. So blockchain was attractive for those two kind of elements to me. It could have been built on something else. I think it would have been slower and not as good. I mean, I'm impressed with, I don't know, I just like it because I'm in the product world all day making technology products. And you must, did you gather like a lot of really great people who've built products before because your product looks really sharp it's obviously solving a, a very real need and it just looks really well done is this your first product yes yeah well great job man <laughs> <laughs> thanks and then how did you raise money and does it have full-time employees or is everyone working like as a side hustle on it yeah, so the original money that we raised was uh, both myself and oh, essentially family. So the other founders are my cousins in the US. So we were confident enough that we bankrolled it for a while, which was a learning curve. Um, and we also managed to attract the support of some other family members, which was really, really good. It really helped kind of get it to where it is today. We do have a couple of full-time guys that are working on uh, both ensuring that we've got a, a development pipeline and a scope that's going to to get our product operational within this year for our customers. So the thing I keep running into with uh, the, these you know, tier one clients I have is when can they use it? So they see the value immediately and they want to know when they can use it. And I'm trying to balance, a, I guess, a complex set of time pressures with the SEC, building the right level of quality, for the right kind of cost and getting it into people's hands as quickly as possible beyond just a, a trial version. Um, and and uh, I think we've got a, a few guys full-time. Well, I know, sorry, I know that we have a few guys full-time. And we also have a, an excellent board of advisors that uh, really experienced ex-McKinsey or ex-Boston Consulting, you know, senior level uh, executive consultants that have you know been instrumental in ensuring that we are kind of ruthlessly focused on what the value is we bring to our customers and not getting lost in the noise which has helped me immensely i know you're in australia right now but it says you have family in california you have a little boy a little girl 
So are you just, do you just travel for weeks at a time or how does it work? Yeah. So I am Australian obviously, and uh, based in Brisbane with my family at the moment, but we do travel to America quite regularly. Uh, we have family in uh, Los Angeles, uh, New York and Colorado. So we try and get around and see them as often as possible. And uh, I've been making the trip over quite a lot to, to continue, um, you know, the efforts on behalf of Mova. So it's been an interesting split. We've got a lot of our marketing, PR type, uh, you know, talent over in the US. And we've got a lot of our kind of strategic advisors and uh, technical talent here in Australia. So um, the... The time I woke up this morning is usually about the time I wake up to start uh, start balancing everything in the daytime, mate. <laughs> so how many hours are you usually awake a day? Uh, probably something like 16, but I'm boring. I don't do anything once I finish work unless I'm home with my kids. Uh, I just go straight to bed. So I'm like a 31-year-old old man sometimes. <laughs> Me too. I got into that groove when i had my little girl and since then i'm just like up early and then there's no tv there's no like all of those things are things i did in my early 20s yeah. there is work and progress and then sleep and then family time yeah spot on i i'm we're in the same uh, phase i think mate yeah so the boston consulting group i looked them up they do everything. They're a large organization. How did you get involved with them? Yeah, so I was head of procurement at uh, Itamitsu Kosan, which is the largest Japanese resource company. And uh, I was kind of way out in the middle of nowhere on a, a, a common called Bogabri Coal. So I was on the leadership team there. And uh, I got a random, <laughs> it's a bit funny actually, got a random email saying I have a job offer I want to talk to you about. So I thought it was spam. But I did get a call from a guy, uh, a bit of a crazy ex-McKinsey fellow uh, from China, and they were essentially trying to, well, growing the operational coaching function that they have. So Boston Consulting are one of the three firms that are referred to as MBB, which is McKinsey, Boston Consulting, and Bain. So they're kind of the tier one management consultants in the world. And they're Boston Consulting... uh, kind of truly world-class at a whole range of things, in particular like finance and strategy, which are guys that are way smarter than me and I don't really understand what they do. Uh, My job for them was uh, essentially transformation coaching. So I would go into a global kind of coal business, do a diagnostic so I understand what was actually occurring, so both behaviorally and culturally what was occurring and understand how they were spending their money and what they were getting for it and then come up with a range of drivers on uh, both price. So, you know, the price you pay for things and how many people you're actually paying. Uh, demand, so what do you actually need to buy and what does it actually work? And process, so is, is uh, your end-to-end process actually working or are there big gaps? And, uh, you know, then lead the kind of global operations and commercial functions for either the coal, oil and gas or uh, metals businesses was another one. So global manufacturers to transform, which is uh, here is our current state. We're losing hundreds of millions of dollars and we need to let go thousands of people to a future state where we're profitable 
my friends have a job and, you know, there's a future for us. So I kind of just fell into it. That's amazing. That sounds like a lot of fun. It, it reminds me of this sort of due diligence I would do with private capital. Yeah. So uh, Boston Consulting and, and those other kind of guys have a real crossover with uh, venture capitalists and, you know, investors and all those kind of guys. So I think there's big problems in both worlds that attract smart people that want to fix them. And, you know, it's quite lucrative as well. So I, I loved being there. It was, there's this really, uh, I guess it's a bit hokey, but it's very true. Uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I was definitely in the right room there because I was the dumbest person in that building. <laughs> I, I, I love that feeling though of when that moment when you realize you're the dumbest person in the room and it's just like, oh my God, there's so much to learn. I just learned how much I don't know. And yeah. then you like just be quiet, but then it feels kind of good. You're like, I'm in, the, I'm in the right spot right now. Like what I'm getting from this experience is going to take me 10 steps forward. Yeah, spot on. I, I just felt like a sponge. And I guess what the strength that I brought to that group, um, and I was just there actually to, to um, go to and, and speak to a procurement leaders conference with the chief procurement officers of some of the biggest companies in Australia, which is pretty cool. Um, it, what I learned there was that my background growing up in a coal mining village basically um, and growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, that kind of practical heuristic leadership background where you focus on credibility and you focus on people, that actually you know, really set me up for success in an environment like that. Nothing, the people that were there were wonderful, but just, I guess, have a different set of experiences. So uh, I, I complemented the, the raw brain power, I think, uh, of those guys quite well. And that's a lesson that stayed with me till today. Yeah, I was talking this morning with my wife and our babysitter, and we were discussing, uh, she runs a au pair group. So there's like 40 au pairs from all different countries in our town and our babysitter, she runs it and she's awesome. And I was explaining to her, she was telling me about the au pairs, like having conflict with the host families and things of that nature. And I said, you'd be surprised. As she was telling me some of the stories, I said, I said, Sandra, you'd be surprised. I go, what you're describing right now, that can translate to a boardroom. <laughs> I mean, I know we're talking about old pairs living with host families, but the the human conflict part of it, which is something you definitely have a lot of experience with working in those high stress physical situations, you know, in the mining world, uh, it, we're all boiled down to just humans and that can translate all around from the, from the bedrock to the boardroom. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that that's what excited me about the, this project and the kind of the idea I had in trying to really give it, give it the best shot it has to be successful on its own merits because making sure that it works for the guy in the warehouse who's working his butt off at 3am and just wants to go home to his family, if it makes his life better and if it makes his job easier, right, and we do so because we've got, you know, the real-time incentives and we actually give him the information he needs to do it properly, right? Right. Then I know that those the measurable cash benefit will hit the boardroom. Like I know that it will. So we're really trying to engineer this so that it's simple, intuitive, and it actually works instead of 
having a million features and trying to solve everything. We're targeted on a very specific kind of cluster of you know, uh, performance and kind of cultural and transparency related issues that should hopefully give that result. And, you know, I think that we're getting the, the mix right at the moment, but time will tell in the real world whether we've got it right or not. I love it. You're doing the, the leadership thing, the correct thing. You're resourcing your great people, right? Uh, trying to, yeah. <laughs> so when will this be, when will MOVA be available and full running full steam with clients and revenue and all the great stuff that makes it a business? Yeah, so we've got, uh, I guess there's two phases. The first is that we are aiming to get a operational version of this into the hands of the clients that have already expressed interest. So um, what the one of the, well, the largest global miner has asked to run a trial, but I haven't signed a contract with them yet. I do have a a signed LOI and trial with Hastings, the, the cat dealer. And we're looking at focusing on those two guys first and getting the product into their hands before the end of the year. So we've done a whole range of trial stuff where they've gotten to use it, run some kind of dummy transactions. We've talked about all the design, they've you know crawled all over it, but actually get it up and running and have deliveries off the back of it this year. Uh, that'll also be the best testing ground to ensure that the, the, the product is operational, ready for kind of commercial scale use. Uh, we're building it so that we could hit the button globally, essentially. Um, so we're not going to hopefully have too many scaling issues, but I really want to get it right first. So the timing for the commercial release, I'm, I'm not sure the, the right way to say that, but that's how I prefer to it. The, the kind of global commercial release will, should be uh, sometime around April to May next year. That's exciting. So you're just at the point now where you're refining it, you're rolling it out with the people who've expressed interest, your first customers, and then based on the feedback and how that goes, you will then take it fully to the market. Yeah, exactly. And our strategy has been um, we're going to target the tier one kind of Fortune 500 multi-billion dollar firms because they've got the largest, most complex supply chains. And that's where my relationships are as well. And right. if it works for a, a you know $10 billion coal mining company that has millions of deliveries and transactions all over remote parts of Australia, the Asia Pacific and the rest of the world, and something like 200 vendors, uh, delivery vendors, if it works for them, it's going to work for everyone off the street. Awesome. So if you could give yourself, like you could travel through a time machine and give yourself a piece of advice 10 years ago, what would that advice be? Oh, that's a great question. Can I only say one thing <laughs> or can I, can I give myself a whole heap of advice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess um, 10 years ago, I was really focused on becoming the best that I could at technical skills, being the best at analysis or negotiating or finding problems and finding solutions and, and kind of problem solving. And I think one thing that I would go back and tell myself, probably the most important thing, is that it's all about people. So the soft skills, the influencing skills are critical, but everything is underpinned by credibility. So uh, you know, the very best leaders, and this is a lesson I learned in the army, they do what they say they will do. 
and you know you don't have to be liked as long as you're trusted and you gain trust and credibility through being dependable and uh, you, you know lifting your fair share and doing what you say you will do and i guess the lesson that i learned years ago as a young officer training in the army if i can tell you for it'll take a second it's a bit of it yeah interesting so the very first time i took the platoon out for pt so like physical training i said all right guys let's go for a run and everybody ignored me and there were some really strong commanding kind of sergeant level guys in the platoon and they just looked at me with utter contempt right <laughs> and so i was like uh, so i raised my voice a bit and said guys you know form up get in line let's run one or two laughed and another guy lit a cigarette everyone just stared at me so i've gone oh god and i had this moment of absolute sheer terror that i've never had before and i had no idea what to do and i said okay suit yourselves then and i thought well if they're not gonna run up go for a run with me i'm gonna go for a run so there was this huge hill behind the barracks and I picked the biggest hill that I could find, which is that one. And I ran up at once and I came down and people, a couple of guys came around and looked at me. I ran up again and ran down. And the third time, a couple of the weak will guys joined me. By the end of it, I think I'd run it 15 or 20 times. I puked all over the place. Everyone was running up and down it as hard as I could, even those grizzled sergeants. And no one ever questioned my leadership again. So that that kind of doing what you say you'll do, leading by example, has stayed with me. So regardless of the problem, the size of the company, the complexity, the people involved, if you if you have that approach and you lead by example and do what you say you'll do, people will listen to you, whether they're CEOs or the people on the front desk. Oh man. Can I use that story? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. all right yeah i will i'm gonna credit you obviously whenever i use that story as you know Lockheed. but that is like i love that one man that's such a good story i can still remember the sheer terror of being faced with 30 guys that were tougher than me and not knowing what to do it was tough awesome Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I look forward, next time you are in the States, if you're traveling here, send me a quick email and let me know and I'll make an excuse to bump up to where you are and say hello if it all fits in the schedule. You'd be surprised how often I say this and it, and it happens from time to time. People say, I just happen to be in, over here and I, and I was like, oh, I've got a huge excuse to go there. So I you know, bump on a flight over there and end up meeting five or six people that I know and so l let me know because I, I think we'd get along super well and have a fantastic, uh, fluid conversation in person, man. Yeah, of course, mate. I'll, uh, I'll definitely let you know. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.